This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. So this is Eric Lowitz, and you are listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, so David, I got to start off just by saying thank you for allowing me to be part of your show today. Um, you know, I get this question a lot. Who am I? What do I do? Um, and there's so many different ways to answer it. You can go chronologically. And I, can, I can bore you with credentials. Um, you know, worked at Anderson Consulting before it was Accenture. Worked at Accenture. Spent a decade in management consulting. Five years at Fidelity Investments and Finance and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Lived during my college days in a, uh, a small town just outside of Kyoto, Japan. With a host family that didn't speak a word of English. And everything I did had to be in Japanese. And I, I could certainly share with you all of that. But I think that there's something of equal, if not greater importance, which is I'm a simple guy with two kids who is connected to this world and sees that while we've got a great place to save, we need even greater action to save it. And so I'm dedicated to saving both our environment and our social fabric in a way that kickstarts economic growth. And, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you uh, come on, not not just the thing about living outside of Kyoto, which is cool, uh, but really what you're, what you're dedicated to. I had the chance to read The Collaboration Economy a few months ago, and I, I really liked that. I think there is uh, – and it's, it's lessening, and thankfully more people are coming along with it. But, but I think there's a tendency when we think about sustainability, when we think about kind of preserving what we have, there's a tendency to feel like that goes counter to business as usual, which it does, but it doesn't mean it runs counter to business. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think if I were to have a, a couple of pet peeves, one of which would certainly be the one where companies will say, oh, we don't do that sustainability thing. We call that our foundation or we call it philanthropy or altruism. Or we're just not interested in any way. And I look at, I look at CEOs, and thankfully fewer and fewer say this to me these days. Uh, but when I receive that kind of a message, I would say things like, well, do you want to provide a return to your shareholders? Do you want your stock to increase or decrease? Because if you want your stock price to increase, embracing sustainability is one of the fastest ways I know to make that happen. Yeah. So. You know, in, in the end, to me, sustainability is about competitive advantage. It's about financial performance. It's about companies outperforming their peers. And let's let's talk about that because you use the term competitive advantage, and I think the, you know the the core thesis of the book is that because of the way we've taxed the resources we have, and because of what is coming down the line uh, in terms of a variety of different sectors, we uh, need to shift from an economy based on competing with several different rivals to economy uh, that collaborates between private companies who are used to be competitors, but also collaborates with governments and nonprofits. And it, it's what you've sort of titled the collaboration economy. Economy. Talk a bit about that shift and why we're moving towards a collaboration economy. Sure. You know, and I think it's a great question. I think much, much like with everything else in life, we like to think about things in a linear fashion. We like to think about, well, if we tackle this, then everything's going to be okay. Or if we tackle that, then everything's going to be okay. I think for companies, there is this natural linear progression from seeing sustainability as philanthropy and altruism and do less bad. We knocked down 10 trees instead of 15 this year. Yay us. Um, 
you know, to a point where there's this recognition that sustainability can truly be a competitive advantage. I think about a company like GE as an example that is able to demonstrate that it's already earned over $25 billion in revenue just from products that have sustainability at, at their core. In other words, they help clients who buy uh, GE products reduce their own energy consumption, reduce their own waste to landfill, and so on and so forth, with the result being GE's earned about $25 billion with a B in revenue over the last half decade or so. But even there, um, some companies might say, well, we've already achieved the pinnacle of, of, of leveraging sustainability as competitive advantage, to which I reply, that can't be correct. You look at a company like Coca-Cola. company has a very linear view of sustainability from this perspective. Without water, there cannot be a product. Without product, there cannot be revenue. And without revenue, there cannot be a company. But Coca-Cola, no matter how large it is, is neither large enough nor egotistical enough to believe that on its own, it can ensure that it as a company has all the water it will need access to in perpetuity. In addition, it realizes the only way to get access to water is by working within various local communities around the world. Zero percent of the company's revenue comes from export business. So what does that mean? It means that Coca-Cola needs to put its head, its head together with other industry rivals. It needs to put its head together with NGOs, with public sector agencies and local community activists alike to figure out how does the company ensure that the communities in which it operates has at least the same amount of water that it did before Coca-Cola came into the community in a way that ensures that Coca-Cola also has access to water in perpetuity. There has to be public, private, and civil sector collaboration, almost tautologically, to solve our global water, food, energy, land use, uh, recycling, health and healthcare uh, systems. And without that massive cross-sector public-private civil sector collaboration, companies as we know them will cease to exist. You know, totally. And and thankfully, some companies are, are coming along, and there's actually a good amount of research into sustainability. I know Academy of Management has picked up the idea of sustainability as uh, a place where we need to do research, particularly in the strategy realm. But right now, um, truthfully, the companies are a bit ahead of the research on this one. And we've talked a bit about GE, we've talked a bit about Coca-Cola, but tell me about some of the companies that are embracing this collaborative approach and, and where the lessons are for those who want to get into it. So take a company like Unilever. Unilever, we, we don't always know that we're touching Unilever products, but if, have you ever had Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Oh, yeah. Right? Have you ever used, say, Dove soap, um, you know, or drank Lipton's, Lipton's tea? If you've ever touched any of these products, you've touched a Unilever product. You've touched Unilever as a company in some way. Or said differently, Unilever's touched you as a company. Well, time was, a company like Unilever would simply say, look, we're going to put as many products out into uh, grocery stores as possible, and that's how we're going to grow, and uh, that's going to be our strategy. Weird thing happened in, in 2010, though, when Unilever CEO, a guy named Paul Pullman, was on an investor analyst call going through uh, the most recent quarterly earnings. And he said, and I quote, um, you know, starting with this quarter and going forward, Unilever will no longer provide forward-looking quarterly earnings guidance. And, and you kind of, if you're an average listener, you, you hear that and you say, well, what does that really mean? 
And what it really meant was that Unilever was trying to get itself out of the quarterly earnings, let's just rush to goose revenue and rush to goose profit every quarter uh, cycle. And instead, they wanted to take a much more longer-term approach to business development. The day Dave Pullman made that statement, his, stock, uh, his company's stock price went down 8%. Within two weeks, it was up 10%, and it hasn't looked back since. And it was a masterstroke. Because what happened is Paul Pullman and Unilever no longer need to give Wall Street um, guidance on what will next quarter's earnings be, which means that Unilever is no longer setting expectations that we're going to grow by 3%, 5%, 7%, which then gave Unilever the cover and the coverage it needed to do the following. It's set, and to the best of my knowledge, it's the first company of its size to do this. It set a competitive strategy, a core mission that the company itself is not capable of achieving alone. And you say, well, well, then why set a mission that you know you're, you're setting, up, setting yourself up to fail? <clears throat> and the Unilever mission is this. It is to double, its, double in size, so double its revenue, but do so in a way that leads to a significant reduction in its environmental footprint while touching at least 1 billion people's lives on a daily basis, while increasing the livelihoods, the standard of living for at least 500,000 smallholder farmers around the world. And that's kind of like saying, David, that you and I can go to the local ice cream store, eat double our body weight in Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and somehow lose half our fat at the same time. That the math on the surface doesn't work. How do you double in size and essentially have your environmental footprint? So Unilever said, we're setting this goal. We know it's a long-term endeavor. The only way we can achieve successful, uh, this, achieve uh, success with this goal is by uh, garnering partnerships around the world with small companies, with large companies, with consumer activists, with farmers, smallholder farmers, with public sector agencies, with many of our competitors, with industry associations. Essentially, Unilever operates as a virtual network of partnerships now instead of going it alone. And as a result, it's come to this conclusion that the company can no longer uh, command, but rather command and control, but rather now only influence and persuade its own corporate destiny. And let me just say that one more time, just to make sure it's really clear. Unilever as a company has come to this conclusion that it can no longer command and control its own destiny, but now only influence and persuade its own destiny. Because much like that Coca-Cola example I provided a few minutes ago, without farmers, Unilever can't get access to food. It can't control how fast it grows. Without distribution, Unilever cannot control how fast and how much food and food-related products that Unilever touches get sold in the marketplace. Unilever has come to this conclusion that the only way it thrives over the long term is by getting stakeholders heavily involved in its business. That's a great example of the collaboration economy in action because at the center you have one company realizes there's a much bigger goal than that company alone is able to achieve. And so it brings partners, whether public, private, or civil sector, all three, into the into the conversation to achieve a far bigger goal. And and that's a I, I don't want to underscore it. That is a big shift from where it's sort of the traditional capitalistic model um, has been for uh, years and years. So with, with that shift, uh, we've talked about Unilever, we've talked about GE and Coca-Cola, but let's talk about the average company. How, how can the average company kind of make that shift and, and win in the collaborative economy? So the average company, 
Uh, and by average company, let's just, I'll give you an, an example of a perfect one. Um, although I'll, dis I'll disguise the name because I don't know if this company wants me to share it publicly. There is a $20 million company, a company that only makes $20 million, uh, makes 20 million in revenue each year. It's a product, it's consumer packaged goods company. Um, and what this particular company is trying to do is it's trying to reduce the incidence of mosquito bites that we all experience. Right? We, it's the middle of the summer. We all go outside, we all get bit by mosquitoes every day, and we spray and lather that DEET stuff on us, which kill, you know, gets the mosquitoes away from us, but makes us glow in the dark in the process. Right? And so there's this $20 million local company, local to the Boston general area, um, and it's been trying to figure out, well, we have this big mission of keeping uh, humans alive by helping them avoid malaria and, and other types of and avionic bird flu that can come from mosquito and mosquito-related bites. How do we affect that? How do we effectively uh, achieve that vision? And so what this particular company has done is it started off following the model in, in my book, the collaboration economy model within my collaboration economy book. The first thing it did is the CEO said, you know what? we realize we alone cannot affect change that is as big as we want. So there is a shift in mindset toward we have to work via partnerships. And then this particular CEO and his company went through an exercise where he figured out, well, what's the change we want to make? What is, where are the boundaries that we currently have where our scale simply isn't big enough to affect that change? And who are the potential partners out there who can help us achieve our mission uh, because these particular partners are interested in the similar mission. And so it then drew up a list of partners with which to work and went from there to say, okay, how do we get the, the government involved? The government through the GSA, the U.S. government through the GSA, the General Services Administration, uh, has a massive buying power, can affect a big change if it wants to. So how can this small company, through its partners, get to the GSA to affect GSA purchasing decisions to buy more of these types of mosquito repellent products that don't require you to slather stuff that might be bad for you onto your body. Uh, and then it went from there to essentially saying, okay, this is our strategy. This is how we're going to go to market. We're not going to spend a lot of money on this. It's not, uh, you know, this isn't rocket science. We're not going to do it perfectly the first time or the second time. So we're going to commit finally to renewing our approach and, and realizing that you know what, going to market via partnerships, working with other rivals and, and NGOs and public sector agencies, you know, is a very difficult way to, to operate. We're going to make mistakes. So let's build into our process a way to realize we're going to make mistakes and, and redo our business model approach. And that's what a small company can do. It doesn't have to be, as, you don't have to be as big as Unilever to make a big change in this world, but you do have to realize that you, you can't do it alone. You have to lever partnerships. And there are small companies out there, even smaller than the $20 million one I'm thinking of right now, that are affecting great change by working in partnership. Yeah, and I, um, it's a perfect example of how you can kind of make that shift. And despite the fact that it's the collaboration economy, that it's about working in partnerships, in all of your examples, I'm catching on to a common theme, and that's that there is a distinct role for the leader of the organization uh, in developing that collaborative model. Can you tell me a bit about what the role of the collaborative leader is in this new economy? Absolutely. And in this new new economy, and, and Call, I call it the collaboration economy, and again, the idea is uh, the challenges we have outside our door are far bigger than the public sector alone can handle, the private sector or the civil sector alone. The only way we achieve 
uh, lasting success by tackling these global water, food, energy, health, and healthcare type challenges is by working across public, private, and civil sectors. The role of the collaborative leader is central to the collaboration economy being the success that we need it to be. Because what happens is that the collaborative leader, he or she, starts with this mindset that his or her, let's just say her, for, for argument's sake, her leadership position, let's say a CEO position, is a privilege and not a right. And that's far different from the capitalistic model where, you know, that that helped, to a certain extent, uh, drive trillions of dollars of value creation, but also cause some of the challenges we have right now. So you start off with this notion that the C, your, your role as a CEO is a privilege and not a right. And when you come to that realization, you start off by asking yourself questions like, okay, how, how do I continue to retain this privileged role that I have? I have this great platform as a CEO. What do I do with this platform? How do I affect the type of change that I really want to? And what I'm starting to see are some CEOs who, in fact, realize that uh, their CEO role is not only this privilege and not a right, but that they should use their platform to serve as an activist to uh, achieve big change in the world. Hmm. I, I think there's a lesson just in there. Maybe that's the, the follow-up book, but the idea that uh, leading an organization, no matter how big, is uh, not a right, not a God-given establishment. It's a privilege from all the people who have agreed to come on board and be a part of it. And you owe it to them to build a, a sustainable competitive advantage. Or, or in this case, let's actually call it a sustainable, sustainable competitive advantage. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I think that's exactly right. Here's a question I'd ask back for you and I'd ask all of your listeners to consider as well. You know, when you think about successful CEOs within our generation or within not even within our generation, within the last 30 years, the name Jack Welch pops up relatively quickly. If you were to create a short list of successful CEOs, Steve Jobs could be another example of somebody you would think of, uh, you know, a little bit more contemporary, perhaps. But think about Jack Welch and think about uh, he was a CEO of GE through the 1980s and his mantra was one, we have um, uh, every business that GE operates will be number one or number two in the particular market in which it operates, or it's going to leave that market. We're going to sell the business. And then the other thing that he was well known for was his mantra that every year the bottom 10% of employees from a performance perspective would be fired. That's the ultimate sign of command and control mindset as, as a leader. And he you know, drove GE stock to new heights, and he was very handsomely rewarded personally for that. But my question to you is, would Jack Welch be as effective as CEO today in today's collaborative, hyper-connected, hyper-dependent market as he was 30 years ago in the you can command and control your company's way to greater success? Oh no, I'm I'm right there with you. I uh, I won't get started on. Uh, we we could we would be here for another thirty minutes if I rallied against that idea of top grading and taking your bottom ten percent, competing them against the you know top top ten percent compete against the bottom ten percent, et cetera. I don't know that that in and of itself is a good model for talent because it makes a lot of assumptions on. Um, having an unlimited supply of talent, you know, let alone the unlimited supplies of, of water, food, energy, everything we've been talking about thus far. I think the assumption that you'll have an unlimited supply of new talent is foolish enough to try and run a company with. And, and you know, I, I see it. I, so I remember being fascinated when I was 
um, studying business in school with people like your Jack Welches. And, and it's interesting, as I interact with the students that I teach now, those that are paying attention, thankfully, are uh, much bigger fans of people like your Elon Musk as a, as a CEO of multiple companies than they are folks like Jack Welch, which is not to take anything away from, from Jack and what he did in that time period, but it shows that at least the newest generation is getting that shift. And I think that's exactly right. You know, and I think there's this great frustration um, among many environmentalists and many socially active, uh, socially aware activists as well, that we're not affecting change fast enough and, and large enough. And that's all right. And that's all true. But the younger generations, you know, are growing up in this mindset of we, not me, to a certain extent. They're growing up with this mindset that Jack Welch was a th- is, is, you know, a successful relic of the past. But, uh, you know, and Elon Musk is a great example of somebody who came to realize that, the environment and society has unmet needs, just like regular customers do. And so if you design products to, to, um, to appease those unmet needs, you'll be paid for it. And he's a classic example of a self-made billionaire who gets that sustainability and embracing sustainability is not only good for your company, but perhaps more importantly, it's good for you as a collaborative leader. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And and I should say again to remind all of our listeners that if you want a good start on how to develop that, the collaboration economy is is a great read for that. But Eric, I want to shift a bit from those leaders and the companies that we've been talking about uh, to you. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, great question. So I'm reading a book right now called Breaking the Chains. It's, it's a little bit of an older book. It came out just a few years ago. It, ta- it tells a story of uh, of the anti-slavery movement in the 17th and 18th century in the UK, and the idea behind the idea behind the story is how can a small group of dedicated citizens affect a change that's far larger than they alone are capable of doing, and that fascinates me. It fascinates me that a few a few people can make big things happen when we're really dedicated to doing so. Hmm. Yeah, no, it sounds like a, a fascinating read. It reminds me of that uh, that famous quote from someone who's so famous, I don't even remember her name, about never doubting the power of a small group of committed citizens to change the world. Yes, yes, and, and that's exactly right. And that's, the whole, that's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's what gets me excited during the day is, you know, I'm not this great evangelist. I'm not somebody who's out there who you're going to see on the street corner saying, don't buy a gasoline. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a regular simple guy who just happens to see some big changes that need to happen in the world and who is positive about, uh, about the human spirit, about the desire for you and me as humans to find ways to not only survive but thrive in this world that we've been entrusted to protect for future generations. And it just takes a few committed citizens to affect great and lasting change. Absolutely. And and by no means is uh, has the word been spread and is the job of spreading the word about the collaboration economy over. But let, let me ask you this. What's next for you? What can we look forward to in, in your life? So the next for me is I'm actually writing my third book right now, uh, which is going to be called Unbounded Growth. It's the idea that companies have these boundaries that uh, define their uh, relationships with employees and their relationships with suppliers and customers. And as a result, these boundaries, this idea that, oh, employees are, are just numbers and customers are just transactions waiting to happen, 
is so completely outdated. So what if you what if you as a company change the way you think about the relationships you have with all of these different constituents? Could you achieve great and lasting growth that provides equal benefits from your for your employees and your customers and your communities in which you operate? Oh wow, sounds sounds fascinating. Thank in- you. In the meantime, though, we'll be looking out and encouraging people to check out the Collaboration Economy. If you want information on how to not just meet customer needs, not business needs, but social and environmental needs as a means to gaining that sustainable, sustainable competitive advantage, check out the Collaboration Economy. Eric, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. David, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.